Hey, Summit family, Jessica here, and I have some news for you. We're so excited to continue to bring different online options for you to worship God with us. Though the online service began out of need back in March 2020, I'm happy to let you know it's here to stay. To that end, we're simplifying. Beginning Sunday, November 29th, we're moving from separate campus podcasts to one main podcast that follows our online service each week. So to keep listening with us, be sure to search for Summit Church and subscribe so you can stay up to date. You'll find this new podcast under the name Summit Church, and you'll know it's us when you see our logo on the artwork. Oh, and if you're wondering about catching up on services at your campus, don't worry. We still have full services from each campus available on their SoundCloud accounts. Head over to our website, summitconnect.org, to find those. And speaking of our website, that's your best place to find all the info about what we're up to and what we're all about. Once again, that's summitconnect.org. And make sure to check out the show notes to link to the website and follow us on social media. Now join us in listening to the fourth and final week of the Esther series. We're in the last week of our series on Esther. And as I've said in previous weeks, if you haven't already listened, particularly to week one, uh, please go back and do that before you listen to this message. The, the, the messages build on themselves and you'll want to have that, that overview, that plot overview from week one to really appreciate the events that happen in subsequent weeks, including today. We are in our last week and we will examine today the question of where we put our faith. And in preparation for this message, I put a, a question out on Summit's Facebook. What's something that you had high hopes for, but it totally let you down? And I got a lot of really great answers. Um, 2020 came up a lot. Uh, adulthood, the size of the Alamo, I can vouch for that. LaCroix, uh, veggie burgers, kale, Napoleon Dynamite, the entire state of Vermont. Um, one person wrote every photo of me after I turned 40. Bangs came up once or twice, as they should. Brendan Fraser movies, Taco Bell breakfast, I have to agree with you there. Sugar-free gummy bears was another, although the Amazon reviews for sugar-free gummy bears will not disappoint. But I think my favorite answer was from Liz at Herndon, who wrote, kissing. After all those Disney magical, must-feel-like-fairy-feathers-on-your-lips kisses, the real thing was just a lot more earthy. <laughs> The word earthy really got me. I laughed alone at my desk for several minutes. So there's a lot of things that we put our faith in, and, and oftentimes a lot of them let us down. We left off in our story last week at this intense moment. Esther has just said yes to this very dangerous task of, of, of appearing before the king unsummoned. And as we learned in week two and three, anyone who does that is killed on the spot. And it's even more dangerous for Esther because she hasn't been summoned by Xerxes for a full 30 days. So we don't know. He may just let her die because if, if she does, then he can replace her with a younger queen. But she finds her courage and she goes before him nonetheless, and he is pleased with her, with Queen Esther. Remember from last week, she becomes Queen Esther when she makes this courageous decision. And not only does he spare her life, but he, he offers to give her anything she wants, up to half his kingdom. And his readers were like, great, this is it. She's going to do it. But then instead of immediately asking for the lives of her people, Esther sets up the palace like a chessboard, just moving people into positions. She, she throws a party, right? And she gives Haman this falsely inflated sense of importance. And then uh, she gives the king a lot of wine and then sprinkles on maybe just like a pinch of jealousy. Like, why is my wife inviting Haman to all our private banquets? Hmm. And as the king polishes off another glass, he asks her again, what do you want, Esther? I will give you anything up to half my kingdom. And it's here in chapter seven, that the queen moves in for checkmate. 
Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. Chapter 7, verse 4. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. I mean, can you hear her just playing him like a fiddle? King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman, it's finally happening. We've been waiting for it for four weeks and it finally happened. The cat's out of the bag and, 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 King, and King Xerxes has Haman impaled on a pole and he gives his estate to Esther. And to Mordecai, the king gives his signet ring, which means Mordecai now makes decisions with the full authority of the crown. He has replaced Haman as the king's right hand. But just as we begin to taste our happy ending, it's pulled out from under us because we see the Jews we discover are still under a sentence of death and it cannot be revoked. And so Queen Esther falls at Xerxes' feet and begs, please overturn this decree. But the king replies in chapter eight, verse seven, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they've impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now we know with our 2020 hindsight that by the end of the book, the Jewish people prevailed. But here's the thing. It's not because they didn't have to fight. They did. The death sentence could not be revoked. I, I imagine that as Esther and Mordecai looked up that 75 feet to see Haman's lifeless body on that pole, they thought that their fight was over, but we see here that it had only just begun because on the 13th day of the month of Adar, people would still try to kill them. Esther could not wisely put her faith in her husband to come to the rescue. Mordecai could not wisely put his faith in his king. And so it begs the question, when we are staring down the barrel of calamity, where can we put our faith? Where can we wisely place our faith? Before we get to that final answer today, Esther offers us some really great wisdom on where we should not place our faith. And so that's where we're gonna start today. So first, Esther teaches us don't put your faith in silver bullets. Silver bullets are this idea that there's just one thing that we could do that would solve all the problems. You know, penicillin seemed like a silver bullet until we started learning about the microbiome and that we were, you know, killing all the good bacteria in addition to the bad. Uh, penicillin is nearly miraculous, but it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve all the problems. When I was in middle school, we had this dog and he was just about like the worst dog I've ever heard of. We had recently moved from Pittsburgh to a farm in Chippewa, Beaver County, Pennsylvania. And, and we'd, had to, we'd had dogs in Pittsburgh, but we also had a chain link fence so they would stay contained. Um, so we were unprepared for the amount of work it would take to train a farm dog. And we were also dirt poor at the time. Um, you know, my mom raised us as a single mom. We were on public assistance. And so she devoted the bulk of her time either working or, or training us, her children. And as a result, we had a very poorly behaved dog. His name was Beavis. And Beavis would do 
terrible things. We, we rented, and so we weren't allowed to put up a fence to keep him contained, so we got a yard stake, but he ripped up the yard stake, and then he went and ate all the chickens on the farm. And so we took his chain and we wrapped it around the tree, and he snapped the chain because he was so strong. He was so strong because um, Beavis would not come when you called him, but we did discover he would chase the car. So if he escaped at night, we would all have to pile into the Toyota in our pajamas, driving the streets of Chippewa uh, with our dog chasing behind us until finally he'd get so worn out that he'd get in the car. Um, but this happened two, three times a week. So the dog ran a lot. <laughs> and as a result, you know, he, he was this just massive dog. He maxed out at about 13 miles the last time we clocked it. So he was just this, this muscular, beefy dog, like, like a canine Dwayne Johnson. And so we struggled to control him. And then one day we see this, uh, this advertisement for an electric fence. And, and in 1994, that was like cutting edge technology, right? It's a fence, but it's invisible. And you train the dog in the boundaries of the fence. And when he gets close to the boundary, it beeps at him. And if he keeps going, it gives him a little shock. And the idea is, okay, so one or two unpleasant experiences, the dog learns to stay in bounds. Now, say what you will about electric fences, but the idea was that Beavis would have a better life. You know, we could install a dog door and he could, he could go out and be in the yard and not just be stuck inside while we were at school and work. And so we scrounged together the money to buy it. And, 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 and by the way, it wasn't just money that we spent on this fence. Uh, it was blood, sweat, and tears because we were on, our, on all fours digging 100 yards of trench <laughs> to bury the line. And the fence comes with an instructional video, 10-day training plan to teach the boundaries of the fence. And we followed it to a T and, and, and we're, we're, we're hitting the benchmarks. The dog is responding at the benchmarks. Everything is going according to plan. But then the moment of truth, day 11, we let him off the leash to enjoy his new domain. And Beavis looks up at us. And then he turns and bolts at full speed, just absolutely flying toward this fence. And he knew, you could see it in his eyes, he knew that the shock was coming, but he didn't care because he knew that the shock would only last a second, but his freedom would last for days. And we probably should have known, right? There's no shortcut for dog training. There's no silver bullet to fix a bad dog. One of the most interesting things about being a minister is that I often get a glimpse into the things about which people pray. And in November of 2020, a lot of people have been praying for the presidential election. And what's fascinating to me is that I've sat with people who, who love Jesus and love their neighbors and who are praying for absolutely polar opposite outcomes because if the other guy wins, it's just the end of the world. It's basically the apocalypse. Now, I have my own opinions, just like every American citizen, but what I've come to understand from my study, particularly of the book of Esther, is that neither, neither of these candidates can cause the end of the world. And more importantly, much more importantly, neither of these candidates can save the world either. We are slowly rebuilding our lives in the wake of an unexpected pandemic, we're navigating the tumultuous waters of race relations in this country. We're working to strengthen an economy that absolutely bottomed out when everything in the world closed down. We're trying to stop the ice caps from melting. We're trying to stop fires from destroying whole towns. We're learning how to live 
within the shifting demographics of our nation and, and finding our place in the global community. And we're trying to raise kids and we're trying to save for retirement and we're trying to buy homes. And what we want is a silver bullet. We want our party to get in there and just fix everything for us. But, but guys, the world is too complex for that. It's too complex. It's, it's, it's naive to even think that that's possible. It's a child's dream that, that, that mom and dad will chase all the monsters away. The world is too complex. Problems are too complex. And sin is too complex for any one person to save the world, with one exception, but Jesus Christ wasn't on the ticket. Haman lost. Esther won. Mordecai becomes the second most powerful man in Persia. But guess what? Kicking out the bad guys doesn't solve all the problems. I don't care who you voted for. You know, neither administration can fix what's broken in this world because what's broken is us. Evil is at work in us in you and in me, no matter who is in office, neighbor still turns against neighbor. People still neglect the poor. People still abandon spouses. They still steal. They still lie. They still cheat. They still kill. You know who didn't actually uh, end racial inequality in the United States? Abraham Lincoln. He signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which ended legalized slavery, but people still look for opportunities to exploit the lives of others for their own gain. They just find new ways to do it. The proclamation didn't solve all the problems of human greed and exploitation. It was simply a counter decree that gave people the right to protect their own lives. It was not a silver bullet. There is no silver bullet for the condition of the human heart. Every leader is flawed, every system unfair. Now that, that doesn't mean we throw in the towel, but it means we work within the system that we are offered. When they found the death edict could not be revoked, Esther and Mordecai didn't say, oh well, guess we better save ourselves. No, no, they, they worked within the system they were offered. And so by all appearances, it was not a miracle that saved the Jewish people, it was a policy a policy that gave them the power to fight for themselves. It was orchestrated by a supernatural God, absolutely, but he chose to work through the natural channels of men. Human beings are not in the business of silver bullets because those don't exist, but we can save a lot of lives with a thoughtful counter-decree. Don't put your hope in silver bullets. There is no shortcut to the daily unspectacular, unmiraculous work of obedience and of service to our neighbors that over time makes a better world. Second, Esther teaches us that we cannot place our faith in surrogates. When Haman was exposed and killed and, and Esther was given his estate, when Mordecai was given the king's signet ring, I have to imagine Esther was thinking, yes, this is it. Xerxes is going to fight for me. He's going to, he's going to reverse the death decree and everything's going to be okay. But he didn't. And it wasn't. I met a woman in a recovery group a few years ago who had just made the incredibly painful decision to not bail her daughter out from jail. She'd been arrested for possession as she had been many times before, but her mom would always bail her out. And she sat in front of me sobbing and saying, I can't keep fighting this battle for her. 
or else she's never going to learn to fight it for herself. Her daughter got clean that year for the first time in a decade. Who is your surrogate? Who do you ask to fight the battles for you? Is it your boss? Does he shield you from having any uncomfortable conversations by having them for you? Is it your spouse? Do you avoid setting boundaries with your own family or extended family and so you have your spouse speak for you? Is it social media, maybe? Do you only post articles and retweets instead of having conversations in real life, face-to-face -face, about the things that you really care about? Is it a parent who, who fights all the battles with your coaches and your teachers so that you don't have to feel the confrontation? Is, is there a roommate or a friend that you have made responsible for your well-being? Instead of, instead of addressing what's broken inside of you, instead of something like counseling, instead you, you ask them to take your calls at 3 a.m. and you ask them to, to, to rescue you from your threats of self-harm. Now, I'm not talking about help. We all need help, we all need support, we all need community, but we need them primarily to encourage us, to cheer us on for the work that we must do, not so that they'll do the work for us. Sometimes we don't want to do the things we know we must, and so we thrust our surrogate out in front and we say, please fight this battle for me, please. And here's the thing, they might really try. They might get out there and fight the battle because they love you, but the truth is, even if they do, it will never result in the kind of victory that God meant for you to win. Not just an external victory, but an internal one of your heart, of your character, and no one can fight those battles for you. Those battles transform us. They build our courage. They strengthen our trust that God will offer us sufficient grace to do whatever he calls, and if we perish, we perish. If Esther had put her faith in Xerxes to fight the battle that she was called to fight, he probably would have saved her life. Esther would probably be saved. Mordecai would probably be saved. But all of the Jews in Susa probably wouldn't be. It would have been a victory of sorts over Haman, but, but, but not the victory that God meant for them to win, a tragic and costly victory at best. Esther and Mordecai had to fight this battle for themselves if they were going to have the victory that God had in mind for them to have. Don't place your faith in, faith in surrogates. There's work to do that you are called to do, and if someone else does it, it won't be done right. And finally, Esther teaches all of us not to put our faith in human hands. The book of Esther ends on this triumphant note with the story of Purim, but, but history doesn't end there. Just nine years later, Xerxes would be killed. He'd be overthrown by his own son, Artaxerxes, who was the son of Vashti, his first wife. Remember Queen Vashti? And is it possible that Artaxerxes lets Esther and Mordecai live? Sure, anything's possible, but she was the replacement for his mom. And that didn't just affect Vashti. That, that, that crushed Artaxerxes' hopes of succeeding to his father's throne. Any of Esther's children would have been his rivals. So if I were a betting woman, I would guess that Queen Esther met her untimely end at the ripe old age of 28. So yes, the book of Esther is a victory against the bad guys, but the thing is, there's always more bad guys coming, eventually. 
And honestly, the good guys don't do that much better. Um, Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah. Remember him from the Minor Prophets series? He's a Jewish leader serving in the Persian court. Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to finish rebuilding the walls. And between his efforts and a few others like Ezra and Zerubbabel, um, the, the exiles return, the temple is rebuilt, the Torah is taught, the walls are finished. But at the end of the day, Nehemiah takes like a victory lap around the city of Jerusalem only to see that none of it actually took because the poor are still ignored. Wives are still abandoned by husbands. The temple is still neglected. Markets are set up all around the, uh, on the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah starts like chasing people and, and beating them and pulling out their hair and yelling at them to obey the Torah, which is not very effective. And he's one of the good guys. Our choices absolutely matter. Esther's choices absolutely mattered. My choices matter. Your choices matter. But the fact remains, human beings are really bad at making choices. Esther makes the right choice, yes, but she almost doesn't. And the Jews who return to rebuild Jerusalem, they make the right choice, but then they follow it with a bunch of really wrong ones. Human beings can have these incredible moments of faithfulness, we really can, but they are more often than not punctuations in whole paragraphs of folly. We cannot place our faith in human hands. And, and, and I can hear some of my friends, I won't name your names on the video, but I can hear you saying, yes, this is what I've been saying. People can't be trusted, especially church people, you know? And so instead of putting faith in others, you put your faith only in yourself. I am the only one who really cares about me. And so I'm the only one I'm gonna trust. And listen, I know how we get here. We get here because church people shut you out when they found out your secret. And we get here because it's my birthday and nobody remembered. And we get here because I waited at the bottom of the steps for dad to pick me up for weekend custody and he never showed. We get here because we found the text messages and the phone calls to another woman. We get here because I had to drive myself to my own surgery. We get here when someone is hurting us and no one is coming to the rescue. I know, believe me, I know why we choose to become self-sufficient. Because putting faith in other people is a real long shot. But here's the thing, guys. So is putting faith in ourselves. It assumes that we can get the job done and we can't. And it assumes that we are the good guys and we're not. Yes, bad guys are always coming after us, but more importantly, much more importantly, bad guys are always coming out of us through our own appalling decisions. So if there's no silver bullets and if there's no faithful surrogates, and if human hands, including my own, don't cut it, then where can we wisely place our faith? We place it in the hands of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the silver bullet. Romans 5, through one man sin entered the world and through one man Jesus Christ, it would be atoned for. We have all longed for someone who could really make it all better and we have him if we will say yes to him in faith. And Jesus is the perfect surrogate. We all long to have an advocate who will fight for us and we have him. Hebrews 7, he is the high priest who saves completely because he lives forever interceding for our sins before the Father. 
And finally, we have all longed to have hands that protect us. And we do. The human hands of Jesus Christ are the place that we can truly rest because his hands now bear the wounds of our redemption. In case you missed it, Esther is the Christ figure in this book. She offers her life as a ransom for many, and on the third day she rises up and puts on her royal robes, saving the lives of her people. But she's a foreshadowing. She's not the real thing. She's a symbol. And and I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart that the real thing is so much better. Because in Jesus Christ, the peace is everlasting. There will be no more bad guys coming for us or coming out of us ever, ever again. That wraps up our four-week series. And just to recap, over the last four weeks, we've learned that God still works through morally ambiguous characters, and that's all of us, and he is still at work even when we don't see him coming. And we learned that God has called you and empowered you to bring a little bit of his kingdom here to earth. And he's given you the, the ability to do it. And, 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 we, and he can do the work without you, but if he does, you will be missing out on a blessing that you can only get by saying yes. And we learned that we become the people we were made to be, really the people who we are, when we say yes to the things that God asks of us. And we learned that there is no perfect leader, no perfect administration that will solve the world's problems because bad guys aren't just coming for us, they're coming out of us too. And so what we need is not just a leader, but truly we need a savior. And that's it. That's our series on Esther. It's been a timely book for me to study. I hope it has been for you too. I needed the reminder that a hidden God is not the same as an absent one. It's not quite the whole Megillah, but I hope it's a good start. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your providence. Thank you for the way that you have woven the threads of this drama together. Thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you that your name is not spoken in it, which sounds like an odd thing to thank you for, but God, it gives us that reminder that you are there even when you seem absent. Lord, allow us to lean into that reality. Allow us to remember that you are there sneaking up behind us, waiting to to surprise us with the good news. Let it give us courage to go to the places you've called us to go. Let it give us courage to spread your good news, even when it's awkward, even when it's painful. Lord, help us to know that it's better to live as who you've made us to be than to live a life in hiding. Lord, help us to take on the work that we would rather pawn off to others. Help us be the people that you created us to be. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.